You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? We are glad that you're here with us. By the way, didn't Pastor George do a great job last week? Uh, filling in, did a great job. So uh, because of that, I was out. I was, I was on vacation with my family, and uh, we went to Orlando to celebrate my wife's birthday. Uh, my wife threw this huge party for me when I turned 50. She was not turning 50, but we decided that we were going to celebrate her birthday, my, uh, the kids and I, we decided we we're going to celebrate her birthday for 10 straight days, which is what we did. It was awesome. So we went to Disney World, and we hadn't been there in a few years, and it was tons of fun. So the first day we got there, we went to uh, Hollywood Studios uh, because she wanted to ride the uh, Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run ride. So we got the, man, this whole system is so confusing now, that lightning Genie, I don't know which it is. Anyway, the genie, genie lightning. Anyway, but uh, the lightning lane pass we got and uh, to ride the Millennium Falcon. And so, because it was her birthday, I said, "Care, you should be, you should be the pilot." <clears throat> so she was going to be the pilot. Mia was going to be the co-pilot. Livy and Xander decided that they were going to be the gunners, and then I was going to be the engineer in the back. But the way it works is, it's got to be every time you ride, it's six people. So. It was Carrie and Mia, Livy and Zan, me, and then there was this single rider, this random British dude that decided to ride with our family, which was fine. And um, this guy had never been to Disney World before in his life, and, uh, which was a lot of fun. So, you know, they line you up, and then they kind of explain it. So while we're standing, sitting, uh, standing waiting, I turn to him, and I explain, like, hey, this is what it's going to be this is what it's like. Because he's like, hey, I've never ridden this before. I'm like, oh, this is tons of fun. You're going to really love this. And he's like, oh, thanks, mate. And I'm like, ah, no problem, Paul McCartney. And, uh, and so anyway, so the ride gets going. And uh, you got to understand, my wife has no idea what she's doing. Um, so her, the way it works when you're the pilot is that she's the one going left and right. Mia is the one that can go up and down. So Mia is trying to pull the, the ship up. And Carrie's just going both left and right all the time. And so the goal is to fly this thing. And once again, she's never flown a YT-1300 Corellian-style freighter before. So what are you going to do? So, but it's like we're inside of a blender. And because uh, we are, if the goal was to hit everything, we would have been racking up points left and right. But unfortunately, the goal was not to hit anything. And so she keeps hitting things. Carrie is screaming uh, at what's going on because she doesn't know what to do. My daughter Mia is totally calm, moving us in and out of light speed, going up, down. Anyway, Xander and Livy are shooting the guns, and I'm in the back, and I'm laughing so hard I can barely breathe. All right? So now the, what my role in the back as the engineer is that I'm supposed to fix the ship. So something breaks, so then something lights up, and then you just press the buttons. I mean, that's pretty much the whole job, but apparently you're fixing the ship. So things light up, you press the button, but both engineers have to do that for it to be fixed. So as we're like halfway through the ride and there's so much screaming and I'm laughing as I'm doing this and I'm kind of holding on, there's this little bar. So I'm holding on to the bar with one hand and I'm pressing all of the buttons. But then the guy on the, on the, um, that's part of the ride is saying, 
engineers, you got to fix the ship. And I'm keep pressing the buttons and it won't fix. And so I turn and the British guy, he has stopped participating and he is just holding on to the seat in front of him with his head. And, and I'm like, and I turn and I'm like, dude, we're in a crisis. And uh, no response, by the way. And I just, I looked and I thought, this is why we had to start a revolution in this country. This kind of behavior right here. And so the guy does not move his head uh, up against the seat. The, the rest of the ride, we land, well, excuse me, we crash land. And, uh, and then when that door finally opens up, that guy just bolts out of there, never to be seen again. I think he left the country right after. And so, and I, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that where you're just like, waiting for something to be over or waiting for something to happen. And, uh, and let me just say, I've been the British guy on several rides in my life, so I, I felt the guy's pain. But sometimes we think when we're waiting on God, we, we think it's like waiting in a doctor's office. It's 72 degrees, 97.3, the coast is playing on the radio, you know, and, and you know, you're like, you're thumbing through a People magazine from 1987 with Millie Vanilli on the cover because that's about how often those magazines get updated. And, and you're, but you're just kind of hanging out waiting for something to happen. Like, that's not real life. Real life is not that docile. Uh, real life is much more like my British friend's experience with the Franquist family. Like you're inside of a blender, things are being shaken up, there's a lot of screaming, there's a guy next to me that's laughing that is obviously insane, and, and so that, all of that is going on. And the reason I tell you this is because the last time we were together, we were traveling with the Apostle Paul uh, on their first missionary journey. They had left the city of Antioch in Syria. In fact, I'll show you the map. This will make a little more sense. You guys like this map, so I brought the same one back. They were here in Antioch, which is in Syria, or it's called Antioch of Syria. They make it to Cyprus, which they travel to two cities there. Then they get on another boat and go to a city called Perga in a region called Pamphylia. And then they make their way to Antioch in Pisidia, which is a larger city in this region. And we stopped there because Paul was going to be preaching a sermon, and there was no way to do Paul's sermon in the synagogue any justice because we had no time. So today we're going to focus all of our time on this message. But just as we get started, let me give you the theme of Paul's sermon, which is going to be the theme of mine. And that is, I know you've been waiting on God, but he's worth the wait. And so if you find yourself waiting on God today, I'm here to tell you that he is worth the wait because God isn't done. God hasn't forgotten you. God is actively working on your behalf right now. So we're going to start at the beginning of Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 16, and here's where we begin. It says, Then Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. With an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now, for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in, in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. And then Saul, uh, God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. 
And when God had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, of whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming, a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. As John, and as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there is one who comes after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to lose. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things that we're going to look at as we look at the promises of God in our time together today. But the first is this, that the promises of God are worth the work. They're worth the work. Now, this is the part of waiting on God that we miss. We think that waiting on God means we're just sitting on our hands until God does something. In fact, it's just the opposite. One of the things that you'll notice as we go through Paul's message is that God is actively inviting people that he calls to be involved in his mission. And so Paul starts with the people of Israel being called by God, and he wants to lead us to the Messiah, Jesus, but in this whole time, it's always God calling people, inviting them to participate. So he starts his sermon by standing and motioning the congregation. This is a small point, but I just want you to notice this, that uh, he, he starts by standing and then motioning his hand that he's going to begin. This is very different to how uh, the, Jew, the synagogues in Israel operated. The way the synagogues in Israel operated are that the rabbi would sit down. And when the rabbi would sit down, that's when you knew he was going to begin to teach. And so this is a difference that continues to this day where we, we kind of followed that uh, tradition of outside of Israel where the person who was teaching stands and the person who were listening sit, which kind of doesn't make sense to me because I've been standing for three services and you guys sit for one. I think it would make more sense for me to sit for three and you guys stand for one. But we already bought all the chairs, so we'll just kind of continue as we are. But anyway, but, uh, and by the way, if you notice the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus began to teach, it says uh, in Matthew chapter 5 that when Jesus was seated, then he began to teach. And so uh, that has, was the model in Israel, but outside of Israel, uh, they had a different tradition. So let me give you an explanation as to how synagogue services worked in that day. Uh, a synagogue service began with what was called the Shema. The Shema is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is the prayer that every Jew would pray upon waking up in the morning. It's the prayer that they prayed upon going to sleep at night. This is how the synagogue service began. Then there was a prayer offered. There was a reading from the Torah. Then there was a reading from another part of Scripture that was called the Haftarah, which is uh, whether it was a reading from the prophets or a reading from uh, the writings or the Psalms. And so then there was what was called the Drashah, and that is the sermon. And it was either delivered by the rabbi conducting the service or a visiting rabbi. Now, Paul, being a visiting rabbi, was invited to address the congregation. And what he begins to do is remind the Jews and the converts to Judaism of their history. He starts with their calling, their time in Egypt. And by the way, these few verses are like the fastest Old Testament survey uh, that you're going to find. But he begins with their calling, their time in Egypt, 40 years wandering in the wilderness, uh, the battle of Canaan to take possession of the land that God had promised them. Then they were given judges for a period of uh, several hundred years. And then a king named Saul, king, Saul was removed, then David. 
David was given a promise that the Messiah would come from his family. But I want you to notice something in verse 19, and this is important for the conversation that we're having today. In verse 19, uh, it, it says that when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land by allotment. And if we're not students of the Old Testament, and I want us to be students of the Old Testament, um, we kind of have this idea. It looks like, oh, this just kind of all happened fairly quickly. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says seven nations greater and mightier than you. And what are these nations? It, it says later in that chapter, but it's, uh, if, if you're a note taker, it's the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. There were also uptites and flashlights. They're not mentioned here. And so, now, but um, the Jebusites, of course, were the last ones that were, that were taken because they, they were dwelling in the land of uh, the city of Jerusalem that was taken uh, by David. But I want you to notice this, and this is the thing. Even though the land was given by allotment, they didn't really step into the promise for several hundred years until um, all of these folks then were then, you know, they, they finally took... Uh, possession of the land. All of this took time. God gave David the promise that the Messiah would come from his family, that would, 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 be, would be a descendant of his. And you know what he did? Exactly what we do. He thought the Messiah is going to come for me. That means the next son that I have. And that's what people thought. They thought, well, then Solomon is going to be the Messiah. And so, and you read Solomon's life, like that dude, definitely not the Messiah. And uh, the Messiah wouldn't show up for, for nearly a thousand years. John the Baptist shows up on the scene, and that's where we stopped reading, that he would show up on the scene preaching the coming of the Messiah. And here's the, the point of what I want to make here in the first part of Paul's sermon, is that most of the bad decisions that we make are connected to impatience when we're waiting on God and we take matters into our own hands. That's kind of the way it always works, is that God gives us a promise and there's a delay between the time the promise is given until the fulfillment. And then we think, well, God's given me the promise, then certainly I must be the one that's in charge of making it happen. And no, God wants you involved, but he doesn't necessarily want you in charge of making the thing happen. And so we take matters into our own hands and we make things worse. Uh, when I, Some of you know this, uh, maybe some of you don't, but before coming and starting Calvary, I spent about four and a half years running a college, which was uh, a great time. A and um, there was a season at the college when we moved and we had shared space with this architectural firm. And so we were, had one side of the building and they had the other, but you would walk into the building and there was this reception area that had a desk and everything, but nobody ever sat there. And I had this chair um, in my office, it was totally falling apart. So I talked to the guy who was, uh, who I knew, who was the manager of the facility, and I said, look, there's this beautiful leather chair at reception. There is no receptionist. Can I just take that from my office, and I'll put that nasty old chair that I have in front, because nobody sits there anyway. So, and, and he said, yeah, I don't think that's a problem. Let me ask somebody, and I'll get back to you. Now, I thought him getting back to me meant he was going to get back to me tomorrow. But tomorrow came, and I thought maybe by next week. Next week came. Next month came. And the month after that came. And now I'm a couple months later. I'm like, is this guy ever going to deliver on this, on this promise? And so <clears throat> I, um, one day I just got fed up, and my chair was just so terrible. It was killing my back. And so I just got in my car during my lunch break. I went to Office Depot. I bought a chair, 
I strapped it to the roof of my car. Halfway back to the office, the chair fell off the roof of my car and started rolling down the street at 45 miles an hour. Then I got to stop, pull it over, and, and then get it. Now the box is destroyed, but I, I strap it back to the roof of my car. I get it back to uh, the parking lot. I drag the thing in, and so I bring it back to, uh, the, I open the door at the college. I bring it in there. There's nobody there but me at this time. So I just, I bring the thing in. I open the door to my office to drop my keys off, and as I open the door to my office, the leather chair is behind my desk. And, and my first thought was, oh no, what have I done? And um, so now I think, can I, I'll just return the chair. And then I look at the box of the chair that has rolled down the street and it looks like it just got back from Afghanistan. And I'm like, I can't do anything with this box. So now I think of the next thing. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna build this chair as fast as I can and then just put it in a classroom or whatever and I'll just, you know, it, oh, that's just the chair that's for that class, and that'll be the end of that. So, and, and so I'm going to just build this thing fast. So I'm, I start building it. And, you know, when you, um, when you buy a chair or pretty much anything, they give you a wrench that is like this big and a screwdriver that is the size of a golf pencil. And th these are the tools that I'm expected to work with. So anyway, I start building the thing, start screwing everything in, and I'm on the floor I have put the chair on. The chair is almost done. I just got to screw four things in to now for the thing to be done. When I'm laying on the floor and I see feet walking towards me, someone has walked in. And um, it is the guy that is the facility manager. And um, he walks in and he says, um, hey, Bob, what's this? And being the godly man that I am, I respond, what's what? <laughs> and, and he's like, D did you go and buy a chair? And I say, Ted, his name was Ted, and um, he and I, believe it or not, are still friends. And, uh, and he's like, I'm like, Ted, what would give you that idea? <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and he says, I, and, but which he did not find that funny at all. He says, I told you I was going to get it for you. Why didn't you believe me? And then just walk, which by the way, heavy, man. It was like, he just walked out. And I was so convicted by that. And I was like, I, I, I don't know. I know. You know, you do a lot of thinking when you're laying on the floor. And so I'm laying on the floor and I'm like, what have I done? What have I done? You know, and, and I just, but I was so convicted by that. I, I, I actually gave the leather chair to my assistant and, um, and I, I kept the one that I bought for me because I, I just couldn't even bear to look at it. I tried to keep it, and I felt so guilty every time I sat down. I'm like, you just got to get it out of here. I don't ever want to see it again. And now, here's, here's my point, is that God is going to fulfill his promise to you. But it takes time. And the other thing it takes is your involvement. Because here's the question that we need to answer. Whenever we feel like God has given us a promise or something God wants us to do, it, we got to answer this question. What am I supposed to be doing while I wait? So if you're a guy and you say, you know, I feel like God has promised me that he's going to bring me the girl of my dreams, then here's what you've got to be working on is becoming the man of her dreams. And by the way, at nine o'clock, man, there was a lot of response for that. Like a lot of single, no, you don't have to clap. <laughs> I'm just saying there's a lot of single women at 945 that were very excited about that point. And uh, so if you're a single guy, you may want to attend 945. 
because uh, there might be a little more opportunity for you. The nobody clapped here, which means I think a lot of everybody here is spoken for, um, or they're just kind of living in incognito. Either way, I'm not judging, but I'm just saying that's what's going on. But, but that's how you work while you wait. That's how, that's, how it, that's how it always is. If you're like, I want God to bless my career, then you got it. here's what you work on. You work on getting the skills, the training, and the tools you need that when that moment comes up, that position, I'm ready, and I'm qualified, and I'm available. If we want God to transform our family, listen, it starts by God transforming us. I don't know if you know this, but you, know, you and I are not very good at transforming people. The only thing, we're not even that good at transforming us. The only thing that we can do is surrender and allow God to transform us, and then God can begin to transform our family. And now, let me give you the other side of that. Here's the critique. As I've taught this, let me give you the critique that people have said. And that is, well, it's not faith if I'm working at it. it you just got to stand back and do nothing while God works. That's faith. And I couldn't disagree more. You know who else would disagree with that? Noah. When Noah got a promise from God, you know what that guy spent the next 120 years doing? working because he knew that God would fulfill his promise and he wanted to be ready when God fulfilled the promise. Working while you wait is an act of faith because you're actually trusting God. You're actually trusting that what he says he's going to do. God's promise is always, my friends, worth the work, but sometimes we miss it because we aren't working in concert with the promises of God. But, my, but when we do, everything changes. Well, Paul's just getting cooking now he's, he's got us to the point of John the Baptist. Now he's going to start talking to us about Jesus. He says in verse 26, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And even though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings. That promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled for us, his children, in that he has raised up Jesus. It is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he has raised him from the dead. No more to return to corruption. He has thus spoken, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served God in his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep. And he was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things which they could not be justified by the law of Moses. Therefore, beware lest what was spoken by the prophets has come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, I know it's a long section, but um, we got to get the whole thing to really understand what Paul's saying. The second thing, if you're a note taker, is that the promises of God are God's will for you. 
Now, for you to understand what Paul is doing here, I have to teach you two rabbinic teaching techniques that were used when rabbis were teaching students. The first is what's called the stringing of pearls. And this is used throughout the New Testament. Uh, Romans chapter 3 is a great example of that. Uh, in fact, half of the book of Hebrews is the, the stringing of pearls. It was uh, given its name in the second century by a rabbi named Rabbi Ben Azi, but the practice had been around forever. But it's taking several passages of scripture, which are talking about a similar thing, and linking them together to make a bigger point. So all of these passages that are speaking of, like in, in this, uh, this case, these are all speaking about the Messiah in part, but linking them together makes a much greater point when we, when we connect them. And that's what Paul's doing here. The second thing that he's doing, and this is kind of the undercurrent of the teaching, is what's called remiz. Now remiz is a Hebrew word that means a hint. I've talked about this in the past if you've been around Calvary. It's where you will quote one part of the verse, but the answer is in the second half of the verse. This week I was reading about a rabbi who was subverted by one of his students. And then after some time, the rabbi and the student ran into each other. And the rabbi simply uttered three words in Hebrew, which is translated for us as, I have raised children and brought them up. That's it. He said that to the student and then walked away. And the student was like, what in the world does that mean? He gets home and then remembers Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2. And look at what it says. I have reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. That second part was the answer that he was trying to tell them. So what Paul is doing is stringing together these three passages out the about the Messiah and showing us a greater picture of Jesus and speaking to them in the undercurrent of Remiz about their current situation. It's absolutely brilliant. So once again, that's why previously he had talked about God's call of the people. He had talked about the ministry of John the Baptist. Then he talked about the ministry, the arrest, death, burial, uh, crucifixion, burial, and then resurrection of Jesus. But he doesn't want to just leave it there because everything else he substantiated using the scriptures. Now he wants to explain that this is how, this is what happened to the Messiah. So he begins in verse 33 with Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, the traditional Jewish interpretation of this at the time was that, because David wrote this psalm, was that this psalm, you are my son, this is God speaking to David. Today I have begotten you was a reference of David being installed as king and his enemies being defeated. Now, there, there was a deeper understanding here. If you note before what Paul says, when he, before he quotes these verses, he says, and we declare to you glad tidings, good news. That's what the gospel means. Good news for us, the children of the people who were given the promises. The thing you have to remember too is that in this passage in Antioch and Pisidia, this group, they were hundreds of miles from Jerusalem, the center of Jewish life. But, and so no promise was coming to them. They were going to maybe hear about the promise, but they, the, the promise was not coming to them. Here's the remiss. Remember, that's uh, Psalm 2, verse 7. I, you are my son today, I've begotten you. Here's verse 8 of Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. The point that Paul is making is that the good news of the Messiah is not just good news for people who are dwelling in Jerusalem. It's the good news for everyone who will hear it. And that even if you're living hundreds of miles away in Antioch of Pisidia, the message of the good news is for you as well. 
There's this, the same thing happens in the next verse, in verse 34, and, uh, which is a quotation from Isaiah 55, where Paul quotes about someone, it's the Messiah, is going to inherit the mercies of David. He's going to inherit the promises that were given to David. But if you read the verse after it, I put it in your notes, he says, um, indeed, I have called you as a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, he has glorified you. It was an invitation for everyone to experience everything that God had for them. That the one who inherited the promises of David, the Messiah, would be the one that was all the nations it was available to. And this was an important thing. Remember, there was a lot of Gentiles that were living in this area. So if the first part was that Jews were going to inherit this, the second part was that it was for everyone. The gospel was for everyone. And then the last passage in verse 35 is Psalm 16. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, this passage was written by David, this Psalm, Psalm 16. But David died. And so... Some thought that this David meant this about himself, but he can't mean it about himself. Uh, this is the, exactly the same argument that Peter uses in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, saying what Peter says is that David was a prophet and knew that this wasn't speaking of him, but it was again speaking of the Messiah who was to come. Now, you might be thinking, Pastor, I'm glad you're very excited about this, and I'm glad that this had a lot of meaning to the people that were listening to this, but what in the world does that have to mean? What does that have to do with me? Well, there's one point in this that I think is very important for us, and that is uh, in verse 36, when Paul is explaining the Psalm 16 passage, you won't allow your Holy One to see corruption. He says this, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. What, what, is that, what does that mean? Th that's what God is asking of us. That's all God asks of us, is that we would serve God in our generation. But see, to inherit the promises of God and everything God has for us, it takes us to stand up, raise our hand, and say, okay, here I am. Use me. And, and, but it always begins there. When we first started Calvary, um, we were meeting in this little hotel conference room, and after one of the services, this guy comes up to me, and he's a young, you know, he's a guy in his early 20s, and um, he comes up to me with tears, and he says, Pastor, I'm all in, and I feel called to be your armor bearer, and he hugs me, and he's crying, and it's a very emotional thing. Now, just to give you a little bit of background, about 25 years ago, there was this book that was getting a lot of notoriety, especially in like charismatic circles. Um, it was called God's Armor Bearer. And uh, God's Armor Bearer was basically a book about supporting your pastor and helping your pastor do the ministry, that everything that's needed in ministry and whatnot. So this guy read the book and came to Calvary and was like, this is, this is what I'm going to do here. I'm going to be Pastor Bob's Armor Bearer. And, and that's what he told me. He's going to be my Armor Bearer. And it was very emotional. And I'm like, man, I'm excited. I hadn't read the book yet. But I was like, man, that's awesome. I don't carry a lot of armor. Uh, but I could, I could, I could get some and, uh, you know, we could like get like a duffel bag or something of armor and just like, let's carry that. Let's go. So anyway, guys all in, um, never saw him again <laughs> after that whole episode, never saw him again. Now, fast forward five years later, I'm in Deerfield beach. I'm at a storage unit in Deerfield Beach, getting all of my mother-in-law's stuff 
out of the storage unit. And you know, these places are such a delight. So I walk in and this place had like extra security because the junk in this storage unit was different than the junk in every other storage unit. So anyway, it's like we got to protect all those VHS tapes. Um, and so anyway, so I go in and uh, I, I say to the guy, I'm like, hey, I'm, I got the key. I'm going to see this storage unit. He goes, yeah, sure. Just give me your name and your ID. So I give him my name and my ID. I say, my name's Bob Franquist. And the guy says, oh, any relation to Pastor Bob? I'm like, yeah, I know him. And uh, uh, but I'm really, uh, that guy's a real problem. And uh, so, no, I say, yeah, no, yeah, that's me. And, um, and then the guy, the guy uh, he's looking down and then he, he picks up his head and I, I, it all came back to me. It was like the end of the movie, The Sixth Sense. And I'm Bruce Willis. And I'm like, he was the guy. And I'm like, you're the armor bearer. What happened to you? I'm like, dude, you cried. You hugged me. You were my armor bearer. You know how long I've been carrying my own armor? For years. I'm exhausted. And, uh, and, and anyway, and, the, and the, anyway, and then the guy, he's the whole story as to what happened after that day and apparent, you know, alien abduction, who knows. And, uh, and so, I don't know. I, I forget what he tells me. But he did tell me this. And he goes, you know, I was, I was praying today. Um, uh, that I want God to work in my life and um, for God to just show me that he wants to work in my life and you just happen to walk in. And, uh, and I'm like, me and my armor, by the way. And, uh, and so anyway, now, here's the point. Here's the point. Sometimes you and I are waiting on God, but can I tell you something? Sometimes God is waiting on us. He's waiting on us to show up and make a decision. Listen, the question that I get probably most often um, as a pastor is they, they want to, people want to know about God's will and what does God want from me? What does God want me to do? Let me share something that has helped me so much. And I've shared this with countless people as they're trying to discern what God wants them to do. And it's, um, it's found in the Gospel of John chapter 7 where Jesus says this, and you'll see it up on the screen. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Now, understand, the people are asking Jesus about his teaching because they're amazed at his words. They're so powerful, and Jesus says, the teaching isn't my, these words aren't mine, they're my father's. And so Jesus' response to that is, anyone who wants to do God's will will know whether what I'm saying is true. And Jesus is giving us a secret to understanding what God wants us to do. Notice what he's saying. If you want to do God's will, you start doing God's will and you'll start seeing if the teaching is true. What is he saying this? If you do what you know, then you'll know what to do. If you do what you know, then you'll know what to do. When I obey the commands of God that I already know, then the things that I don't understand become much clearer. Too often we get stuck on something where we don't know what to do and we put everything on pause until we, we get the answer to the thing that we don't know. Listen, that's a really bad strategy. You decide this instead, that I'm gonna keep walking in obedience to the things that I am sure God wants me to do. And then God is gonna reveal to us through our obedience the things that we don't understand. And God has this way. Can I just tell you this? When you're obeying God and the things that you know, that you know you're supposed to do, God has a way of taking your obedience and multiplying it. He has a way of taking your obedience and giving clarity in the things that you don't understand because you focus on the things that you do understand. So let me, um, we're almost done. I have four seconds to do this. So let me read the last 
few verses. Look what it says. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and the devout proselytes, that would be converts to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be preached to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified uh, the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city and raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. But they shook off the dust of their feet and came to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now if you pause there and give me uh, your attention. This is, here's the last thing and then we're done. And that is that the promises of God are directing your future. They're directing your future. Can I just say this? And I'm so grateful that um, I experience what, what Paul and Barnabas uh, experience when it says that the Jews of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that the words might be preached to them. Uh, I don't think there's a week that goes by when I run late, which is, you know, all the time. And um, because uh, you guys kind of experience this on the front end as opposed to the back end. Like the service starts a little late because I went long at 9.45 and then I went long at 11 and then this service that starts at 12.15 starts a few minutes later. But I get this every week. Someone says, you know, we could just add 15 minutes to the service and then you could just, you know, I just feel like you're rushed. And um, by the way, no one who serves in the children's ministry has ever said that to me. Uh, but, <laughs> but some of you guys have and I appreciate that, that, um, you know, we have a church that, People are hungry for God's word, and, I, and, and I'm grateful for that. But I want you to notice something. The Gentiles are excited. They're begging for Paul to continue to preach. But it says that the Jews were envious, that the, the whole crowd begins to gather. Did you see that in verse 44? The whole, like the whole city came together to hear the, uh, the word of the Lord. And then verse 45, that the Jews saw the multitudes and were filled with envy. Now, I want you to notice something that... They say, hey, you know what? We're going to go to the Gentiles. This becomes what some might think is a closed door for Paul, becomes a defining moment in Paul's life where he says, okay, that's fine. I'll go to the Gentiles. This becomes, as I said, a defining moment in Paul's life and ends up becoming kind of the hallmark of his ministry. In four of his letters in the New Testament, Paul says that the unique calling that God has given him is that he is called to teach and preach to the Gentiles. I put one in your notes in 2 Timothy 1 where he writes to Timothy, he says, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. My point is this, is that God's promises to us aren't just about something, something being fulfilled, right? Like it's a Christmas present that finally got delivered. Instead, God's promise to us becomes also a path that we walk on a manner of life that we live as we become the people that God created us to be and what he wants us to be. Now, 
There's one last thing that I want to share with you, and then, and then we're done. And that is, and this is really important about our conversation about stepping into God's promises, and that is the role of envy. I told you the whole city comes out in uh, Antioch and Pisidia to hear Paul and Barnabas, and these people are uh, filled with envy. Now here's, now let me explain what envy is, because people get envy and jealousy confused all the time. Envy is desiring what someone else has. Jealousy is uh, the fear that someone is going to take what you already have. But envy is desiring what someone else has. That's what's happening here. They, the Jews in this area, they are envious because they want the crowd that Paul and Barnabas have. And it leads to all kinds of other problems. Envy, contradicting, blaspheming. And now, here, here's why understanding this promise is so important for our conversation about the promises of God. Because you can't have joy and be envious at the same time. The problem that we have is that we live in a social media world where everyone is posting everything and everything looks perfect. Here's some inside baseball. It's not. You know how when you're going to take a picture, you take like 45 pictures before you finally post one? That's everybody else too, all right? And so that's just how it is. But the fastest way to kill the blessing of God in your life is to start comparing it with somebody else's life, somebody else's career, somebody else's family. All that will do is bring enormous pain into your life because the promises that God is giving you are really for you. God's will for you is for you, not for somebody else. And what God has for somebody else is for them. And the best thing that you can do is celebrate what God is doing in them and have gratitude for what your heavenly father is doing in you. And if we don't, we are gonna live a miserable life. Because whatever we have or whatever we experience or whoever we marry will never be enough because there's always going to be somebody who has more. There's always going to be somebody who has, has it easier. There's always going to be somebody that, well, they just seem to get along better. And, and listen, in, the, in uh, the book of James, the half-brother of Jesus, he says it this way. He says, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Man, that passage, that's a sermon in and of itself. Where envy and, and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. What's the cure for envy and self-seeking? To celebrate what God is doing in other people. Oh, but see, that's not honest. And I would never do that because I don't feel, if I don't feel like celebrating, if I'm not feeling it, then I'm not doing it. My friends, let me share you, with you an important biblical truth. And that is, you do the right action and the feelings will follow. Do the right thing and the feelings follow. Your feelings are God-given. But let me tell you something. Your feelings are not a good leader. They're a much better follower. Culture says, I'm not doing it if I'm not feeling it. And the Lord would encourage us to do it and then you'll start feeling it. Why? Because radical love throws a party and leaves no room for envy to live. Why do I say that? When my wife and I uh, got married, um, it took us... 10 years before our first child was born. And let me tell you what happened in the first 10 years of our marriage. All of our friends got married and all of our friends started having kids. And then some of our friends started having a second child. And then some of our friends had a third child in that 10 year period. And let me tell you what happened in us is that there was this feeling of self-pity and there was this temptation to not be happy for them. And, you know, you, all this happens and people are like, you should go to the doctor. So we go to the doctor and get tested. And the doctor says, hey, there's no medical reason that's keeping you from having a baby. And it was like year after year after year. And, and we had this choice to make. 
And listen, if you've struggled with infertility, then, then maybe you can resonate with, with what I'm saying. But we have this choice to make, and that is that were we going to be envious people who can't rejoice when the people that we loved were blessed? Or were we going to trust God that God was going to fulfill his promise to us in due time? And here's what Carrie and I decided to do. We decided that we were going to be as happy for others as we wanted them to be for us when it was our time. And so we, de we decided that we weren't just going to attend the showers and the parties. We decided that we were going to throw the showers and the parties and we were going to host it. Why? Listen, because it set us free. It brought so much joy into our lives to celebrate with the people that we love the most in the world. And you know what happened? The day that we found out that Carrie was pregnant, our joy was multiplied. Not just with us, but everyone around us was as happy for us as we had been for them. My friends, that's what celebrating with other people does. It, it, it sets you free. If you are mad about the fact that somebody else is blessed, can I just encourage you? Rejoice with them. Now, it may sound crazy. I don't feel like that. Listen, it is the absolute best medicine because it leaves no room for envy. And this is why we come to the communion table. We come to the communion table because we want to be reminded of what matters most. Communion brings us back and it centers our lives on Jesus and draws us close to him. And it causes us to examine ourselves. And maybe there's some envy and, and maybe there's some impatience that we've kind of stepped out ahead of what God wants to do. But maybe this is our moment to get back and to recenter and to let God examine us and see what it is that he wants to do in our lives when we make the decision that if we will do what we know, then we'll know what to do. So I'm gonna invite the ushers to come forward and they're gonna hand out the communion elements and I'm gonna uh, encourage you to hold on to them and uh, as you do, Pastor George is gonna lead us and then we'll partake of the elements together. I will live for the moments where I'm still in your presence. All the noise dies down. Lord, speak to me now. You have all my attention. I will linger and listen. I can't miss a thing. Lord, I know my heart wants more of you my heart wants something new so i surrender all i want is to live within your love be undone by who you are my desire is to know you deeper Throw my fears into the wind I am desperate for a touch Cause all I want Is to live within your love Be undone by who you are My desire is to know you deeper Lord, I will open up again 
Throw my fears into the wind. I am desperate for a touch of heaven. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the cup together. And Lord, we are so grateful for the fact that you want to lead us, you want to direct us, you want to give us promises and then see those promises come to fruition. So Lord, help us. Help us to follow you, to walk with you, to not be envious of what you're doing in other people's lives, but instead to run the race that you've given to us. Because you're going to fulfill the promise that you've given to us. And we pray it in Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Let's all stand. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.